Be gracious, Father. The true understanding of your holy word helps us grow into the fullness of the salvation you so freely offer in Christ. Grant to all of us that our hearts, being freed from worldly affairs, may hear and grasp your holy word with all diligence and faith, and that we may rightly understand your gracious, gracious will, cherish it, and live by it with all earnestness, to your praise and honor. Through Christ our Lord, amen. Scripture reading this morning is from 2 Corinthians 8, verses 1 through 15. And now, brothers, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. Out of the most severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able, and even beyond their ability. Entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the saints. And they did not do as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then to us in keeping with God's will. So we urged Titus, since he had earlier made a beginning, to bring also to completion this act of grace on your part. But just as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in your love for us, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. I am not commanding you, but I want, to, I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. And here is my advice about what is best for you in this matter. Last year you were the first not only to give, but also to have the de- desire to do so. Now finish the work so that your eager willingness to do it may be matched by your completion of it according to your means. For if the willingness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what one has, not according to what one does not have. Our desire is not that others might be relieved while you are hard-pressed, but that there might be equality. At that present time, your plenty will supply what they need, so that in turn, their plenty will supply what you need. Then there will be equality, as it is written, He who gathered much did not have too much, and he who gathered little did not have too little. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Allison. So this is the the penultimate, the second to last uh, sermon in this series. We've spent the latter part of the spring and into the summer considering our church covenant, which is a nearly 200-year-old document that has guided us since 1840 in reminding us of the commitments that we make to one another as a church family. Um, I've said before that some of the other sermons were probably the hardest for me to preach. This morning's is probably the, uh, the sermon that people least look forward to hearing. This morning, we're considering the phrase in our covenant that we will strive together for the support of a faithful evangelical ministry among us. Now, that's really vague and flowery language, but when we think about striving together for the support of a faithful ministry among us, what at least I'm pretty sure, now this is, this is not scripture, but what it seems to me that the authors are talking about are that we will share our resources to minister together. In other words, we're talking about money. 
This is a sermon that nobody likes to hear. Sometimes visitors, especially, uh, you come to church and then all of a sudden the sermon's about money and you think, I knew it. Like all they talk about in church is money. We actually don't talk about it that much here. I probably should talk more. Um, did you know, by the way, that, so do you know by the, Jesus actually taught more about money than he taught about heaven and hell combined? Did you know that? So this is not just us making stuff up. I'll give a couple of qualifications and disclaimers at the beginning, and I'll revisit them at the end. Um, we don't talk about money. One, we don't talk about money because we're struggling as a church. We're doing, we're doing okay. This is, not, um, this is not because we desperately need to fill our coffers and we're in some sort of grave financial danger. This is not because Pastor Chris's salary is on the line. Thank God. <laughs> This is really, in a sense, not about money at all. We're talking about money, but what we see every time we encounter the scriptures and when the scriptures and Jesus teach us about money, what we see, and this is maybe the most important thing to remember, is that God actually doesn't need your money. Hear me loud and clear on this. God does not need your money. If he did, he wouldn't be God. He wouldn't be all-powerful. He made everything. Everything is his to begin with. He doesn't need your money. He wants your heart. And the reason that even Jesus had more to say about money than he had to say about heaven and hell combined is that he knew that how we use and spend and earn and save and give our money reveals an awful lot about our heart. Jesus puts it this way in Matthew 6. He says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where your treasure is, there your heart would be, will be also. Now, in modern society, we might, at the risk of adding to Scripture, I don't intend this to add to Scripture, but I might add one category. If you want to know where your heart is, you can look, I think, one of two places. You can look at your credit card statement. What do I spend my money on? And you can look at your calendar. If you take a good hard look at your credit card statement and your calendar, you'll, see, you'll just see, like, this is, this is what is really important. These are the priorities in my life. That being said, this is not about guilt. This is not about trying to force you to give something or to coerce anything. It's really not. In fact, if by the end of the sermon you feel guilty at all, I've failed as a preacher You might think about giving this way, and I found this so helpful. I've, I've had this thought, and then Paul just says it right here, and I realized it wasn't mine at all. It was his. That especially when we're talking about money, but really with all the commands in the Scripture, you might think of it as less a command and more an invitation. He says, did you see it right there in verse 12? He says, I'm not commanding you. And then basically uses different words to say, I'm inviting you. What's the difference between a command and an invitation? A command. You must do X, Y, Z. And if you don't, you'll be punished. That's one of the reasons I think so many, so many of us tend to feel guilt surrounding our money because am I doing enough? Am I not? And if it's not enough, is God going to punish me? An invitation, on the other hand, there's no punishment involved. If you're invited to a wedding, if you're invited to a party, if you're invited anywhere, what happens if you don't go? There's no punishment. But in fact, it's you who misses out. 
God doesn't invite us to give and to give generously because he needs it, because something is on the line as far as he's concerned. He invites us to it because this is for our joy. So this morning, we're going to look at giving through the lens of an attitude and a spirit. And this is what we really get loud and clear in 2 Corinthians 8, that God invites us to give with an attitude of joy and in an amount, because we can't, like we all just think about amounts all the time and numbers, in an amount, this is vague, that is generous. Joyful generosity. Joyful generosity. Now first, let's consider the joy the joy of giving. Early on in the first kind of half of our scripture reading this morning, Paul commends two churches. So he's writing to a church in Corinth, which is a city in Greece, but he also writes to them about another church in Macedonia, another region not too far away. And he praises both of them not because they gave a lot. In fact, we don't know how much they gave. Paul never says. And he could have because very specific, not dollar amounts, but but monetary amounts are given in many other places in Scripture. Paul probably intentionally does not tell us how much they give. What does he emphasize? He emphasizes the spirit which, with which they gave. Look at verse 4. He's talking about the church in Macedonia first. He says, The Macedonian Christians urgently pleaded with us, like they begged us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the saints. That's so, so we, and we know from context and from an Acts, Paul was taking a, a collection, basically, to help ease some of the financial burdens of Christians in other parts of the world at that time who were particularly impoverished. They urgently pleaded for the privilege of being able to give. And almost in the same breath, then Paul reminds the Corinthians of, of their church, their experience, just a year prior. He says, last year, You were the first, not only to give, but to have the desire to do so. Now finish the work so that your eager willingness to do it may be matched by your completion of it. Do you see what he's talking? Urgently pleading, desire, eager willingness. Do you see the spirit that he's really commending here? He's not talking about an amount. He's talking about an attitude. They gave with joy. In fact, they were so filled with joy that they couldn't not give. You see, true generosity, true generosity is rooted in joy. You might go so far as to say if it's not rooted in joy, then it's not truly generous. So imagine with me one very abstract situation and then one more concrete situation. First, uh, I hope this hasn't happened to any of you, but this this came, this not happened to me. But imagine that somebody gave you a gift that they didn't really want to give you. That's, it's a weird situation, right? And like I said, I hope this hasn't happened, but just imagine, even just imagining it, it's, it's pretty uncomfortable, right? Like for somebody to, to give you a gift and you receive it and you know they don't really want to give it, so how do you respond? Like, do you respond graciously? Oh, thank you, thank you. Do you say thank you? Because you didn't do you accept it? Like, you don't really want it, so I don't, if you don't want to give it, I don't really want to receive it. It's it's just awkward. That's abstract. Okay, so let's make it a little more concrete. Um, Imagine, wives, imagine your husband brings you home flowers after work one day. I hope you don't have to, I hope that actually happens. You don't just imagine it. But, so, husband brings home flowers after work one day, and you say, sweetie, these are beautiful. Like, what? 
Why did you get them for me? Now, here's the imagined part. I hope this doesn't happen. You say, sweetie, why did you get me these flowers? They're beautiful. And he says, well, it's my duty. <laughs> Wives, do you still want those flowers? I, I don't know. Maybe you do. I don't, but I'm assuming, like, the minute you find out that a gift is rooted in duty and in obligation and not just out of joy and an overflow of love, it kind of ruins the gift. It would have, I'm assuming, it would have probably been better for him not to bring anything at all than to bring flowers and say, I have to, so here. You see the difference? True generosity is rooted in joy. If it's not joyful, then it's not truly, excuse me, generosity. And that's what Paul is getting at with both the Macedonian and the Corinthian Christians. That it really kind of doesn't matter how much they gave. What matters is the spirit, that they were eager to be generous and to give to one another. Now, we're really only taking, we only took kind of the first half of 1 Corinthians 8. Paul actually spends two chapters chapter 8 and 9 in 2 Corinthians, talking about generosity. If you look a little bit ahead in in 2 Corinthians 9, verse 6, this isn't printed, but you can just listen. Here's what Paul says further. He really zeroes in. He says, remember, whoever whoever sows sparingly, imagine a farmer sowing seed, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Put out just a little bit of seed, you only get a little bit of a harvest. And whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Then he really, here's kind of the arrow to the heart of the matter. He says, each person should give what they have decided in their heart to give. Here's the famous line, for God loves a, you know it, cheerful giver. Paul trips over himself to make sure he's clear. This is not about some amount of money it's not about asking, am I giving enough? Am I not giving enough? Am I? It's about the heart behind the gift. Look back here in chapter 8, verse 12, if you still have it open. He says, if the willingness is there, the gift is acceptable. According to what you have, not according to what you don't have. This isn't about guilting because I didn't give as much as so-and-so. I, we don't really know what each other gives. But. And he, over and over and over, he's making the same point. That the heart behind the gift is what counts, not the amount of the gift. That being said, some of us still can't get past the question, so, Pastor Chris, how much should I give? I'll tell you at the outset, I'm I'm not really going to answer this. But we're going to think about it, and I hope that by the end of the sermon, I've convinced you to think well about it without being straight-jacketed by certain amounts or even percentages. Because we, we, get, we get so, like, wrapped up. When money is involved, it's just, it does weird stuff with our hearts, doesn't it? And we have a lot of questions. How much is enough? Should I tithe? Am I, are Christians bound by a 10% tithe, like in the Old Testament? And what about if I can't afford to give? Well, what about this situation? What about that situation? Maybe we can answer kind of the principles by addressing just a few of the specific questions. A lot of people wonder about it. So tithe is just a word that it literally means 10%. And the Old Testament, the nation of Israel, the Israelis, Israelites, were commanded by God to give the first and best 10% of all of their harvest and their produce and even their livestock. 
So when we say we tithe, that just means we give 10% of our income. Now, what's funny, again, this just kind of goes to how this messes with our hearts. We start asking all sorts of other questions. Oh, okay, 10% of, of what? Do I have to give 10% of gifts? Do I give 10% of my before tax or my after tax income? Do I give 10% net or gross? Like, we just can't stop asking about these specific questions. Let me just say in short, and I could preach a whole sermon, I almost did, but I didn't, uh, about just uh, the tithe, specifically the tithe. Let's just be clear. And Jesus tells us this in Matthew 5. He says, I did not come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill it. And what he's basically saying there is, is this, because there's kind of two competing values. We're not strictly speaking bound by the Old Testament law of tithing. We're not required biblically. The Bible doesn't say you must give 10% of your income away. And we all breathe a huge sigh of relief. But before you breathe that sigh of relief, just realize what Jesus is doing, especially in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. He's not lowering the bar. He actually raises the bar. In Luke 9, Jesus says this, if anyone wants to follow me, let him deny himself Take up his cross and follow me, for whoever would save his life will lose it. But everyone who loses his life for my sake will surely save it. The trouble with a focus on a certain amount or a certain percentage is that we start to see that amount or percentage as kind of a ceiling. Okay, I've just got to get to 10%. And then once I've given 10%, then I've given enough and I don't have to worry about this again. But Jesus, following Jesus, isn't a matter of just doing enough, like, like doing enough to get a pass on that pass-fail grade. You ever take a pass-fail class in college? I, remember, I, I took one class, pass-fail in college, and I literally emailed the professor before my final. Uh, I was trying to kind of, through the back door, suggest to him that he might be a little generous with me. And I said, what's the number grade I need on this final exam to get a pass, to get the 70%? What was I asking? What's the bare minimum I have to do in order to to get in? I passed, by the way. (laughs) What's the bare minimum? Okay, I've just got to give 10%. Okay, I'll just give 10% and then I'm good and I don't have to think about this anymore. And Jesus says, following me is not a matter of doing the bare minimum. It is a matter of growing into a process of whole life discipleship, where my whole being is involved somehow in following him. I'm just going to leave it there. I'm not going to answer anymore. (laughs) So do I give 10%? I don't know. We're going to explore this a little more, though. The next question that that comes up, okay, well, what about somebody who doesn't earn a lot of money? What about somebody who's really like they're in the poverty or close to that, or they live paycheck to paycheck, or what do we do? What if I can't afford to give? Let me point you back to verse 12. Look at what Paul says. If the willingness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what someone has, not according to what they don't have. What he's basically saying, you can't give what you don't have. So he's not asking you to impoverish yourself. God doesn't tell you, give so much that you can't put food on the table. He never tells us to do that. And remember, this is not about commands. This is about an invitation. 
You can't give what you don't have. So it's not even about certain numbers, which is why I can confidently tell you, whether you believe me or not, I don't know. Like, this isn't about the church budget, because it's not about guilt, and it's not about duty, and it's not about obligation. It's not like we have to hit some number, and this is about joy. This is an invitation more than a command. And what we find is this. The more sacrificially generous we are, the more we discover joy. This is actually a cyclical process. See, I said earlier that that true generosity is rooted in joy, that joy leads to generosity. But as it turns out, generosity leads back to joy. And so we find ourselves in an upward spiral of joy and greater generosity and greater joy and greater generosity. There's no set number, and we're really, I'm really not interested in any set numbers. I will say, and Paul indicates here, that to be truly generous indicates some measure of sacrifice. Sacrifice what? I don't know. You decide. So this is the difference. Um, this is the difference between your kid. Just imagine, maybe this has probably actually happened to many of you with kids. Imagine your kid gives you a piece of Halloween candy and they say, here, mom, and they give you their, like, Three Musketeers bar say, I want you to have this. I don't like it. Well, that's not a sacrifice. Now, it's your kid, and I know your kid is just adorable and cute, and so thank you so much. And you happen to like Three Musketeers bars, and so, great. So you'll eat it, and you'll gladly eat it. But there's a big difference between that and your kid saying, here, mom, I love Kit Kats. And I want to share my joy. I want to share this Kit Kat with you because I love these and I know you will love it and I want us to enjoy this together. See, that's the difference between giving that's not a sacrifice and giving that is a sacrifice. Parents, I'm sure your kids have never done that before. What we find is that the sacrifice actually creates a measure of joy, both for the person giving and for the person receiving. This is, this is highly unusual. This is not our natural bent. And people notice. I don't remember where I read this, and I don't remember which Roman emperor said it, but at some point in the first three centuries, as Christianity was really starting to gain traction in the Roman Empire, one Roman emperor wrote and observed this about Christians. He said, they are stingy with their bodies and promiscuous with their wealth. They are stingy with their bodies and they are promiscuous with their wealth. And he points out that this runs completely counter to ancient Roman culture. Ancient Romans tended to be stingy with their wealth and very promiscuous with their bodies. He says, I can't figure this out. By the way, maybe that sounds more like, maybe that's not true only of ancient Rome. But what does it mean as a culture when we become known for being promiscuous with our finances. You see, when we're joyfully and sacrificially generous, it makes a statement. People notice. Again, how do you put this into practice? I mean, the the best pastoral answer I can give is you figure it out. (laughs) I know you want answers. I know you want a number and you... That would violate the whole principle of joyful, sacrificial generosity. And in truth, I hope the fact that there is no set answer introduces freedom instead of making you feel handcuffed. 
Let me suggest this. Just a couple of notes. And now we'll start. uh, I want to show you some of how people have put this into practice. Not to say you have to do it this way, but just to get some of those juices flowing. Maybe one of the most effective places to start, if you haven't done this, is to take an afternoon or an evening, a couple couple hours maybe it'll take, and sit down and really genuinely take a hard look at what do I, what's my income and what do I spend? And is there some way that I can cut back in one area so that I can give and be generous in another? Like in some sense, there's, there's kind of a high startup cost. Like there's resistance. This doesn't just happen on its own. But it's much easier to sit down and just start, and just start somewhere. Right or wrong, there is no real right or wrong, because once you start, then it's a lot easier to adjust and to tweak over time. Remember cars that didn't have power steering? Anybody? Believe it or not, I do. My first car didn't have power steering. That's because it was broken, not because it was that old. Uh, 1986 Toyota Camry. No power steering. Remember how hard it is to turn the wheel of a car, a car with no power steering that's parked? Like you've got to put your weight into it if you can do it at all. But once you start moving, you're actually able to turn the wheel of that car. Now, I'm not saying it's easy, but it's much easier. It's much easier to turn a moving car than it is to turn a parked car in the same, same vein. You just start somewhere, and then you can tweak and you can adjust over time. Now, I know some of you do this very directly. Some are very intentional. Some of you um, just, just hear it. This is one of the things I've loved about being here for almost eight years now is the generous spirit that actually is here. It's appropriate to celebrate that, not with specifics or calling out people by name, but um, I know that some of you have just heard about a need that somebody had and you wrote a check or you just got a gift card and gave it to somebody. On a few occasions, I've actually had people give me cash or a gift card or something to give to somebody else so that the gift could be anonymous. (laughs) That's so fun for me. And the people giving the gift, like there's joy in their eyes. And when I get to give that to somebody and say, somebody gave this to me and they wanted to stay anonymous just to bless you, it's just, there's joy all around it. Um, this, is, this is a really fun example. And again, this, um, this is to illustrate, it doesn't have to be anything big. Every, every fall, our board of deacons give uh, gift cards, back-to-school gift cards to family with school-aged children. And so those some of you parents who have school-aged children, um, hopefully you started getting those this uh, late summer and into early fall. And a few years ago, I was just reminded of this story a couple weeks ago. A few years ago, one of our students, she was probably in like third grade or so, she got a gift card, and she, she took it to her mom, and her mom explained, this is to help you buy back-to-school supplies, and she said, Mom, I really want to use this to buy a lunchbox for my friend. Just beautiful. I mean, we're talking what? Like, how much does a lunchbox at Walmart cost? Maybe 10 bucks. I, I, don't, I don't actually know. And yet the spirit behind that of saying, you know what, I want to use this thing to be generous towards a friend is such a perfect encapsulation of what we're talking about, of joyful, sacrificial generosity. You should know, by the way, that um, we practice this as a, as a church, as a church family, more formally. So we tithe from our church budget. And uh, our church has, we've agreed um, as a congregation that every time anybody gives to the church, 
we, t- we give 10% right off the top of that. So we take the tithe because it's a helpful guide. And we set aside 7% of everything. So when you give to us 7% of that, we set aside for our missions fund. And that supports uh, local and global missionaries and everyone in between. So we talked, Doran just talked about Operation Blessing is collecting um, backpacks and school supplies for families in need. And those of you who are here three, year, three weeks ago, remember Ann and Bill Clemmer, missionaries we support in the Congo, Democratic Republic of Congo. Um, when you give, you're supporting groups like Operation Blessing locally and Ann and Bill Clemmer globally and about like a dozen and a half others. It's really cool how much we're able to give. We set aside 7% for that, and then we set aside 3% in what's called our Deacons Fund, and we use that to help members of our church family who are in need. So if somebody loses a job or somebody needs help with heating bills or gas cards or whatever, we're able to very generously and liberally uh, give. There's so much joy, I'll tell you, by the way. I get to sit around the tables that decide how, how, how do we give and where are we giving to missions efforts and the Deacons Fund. Y'all, it's just fun. It's just fun. And your generosity even to Middle Street helps Middle Street as a group be generous and pay that forward as well. Ultimately, let me just reaffirm this. What matters is not the amount or the system, the dollars, the percentages. God doesn't need our money. He wants our heart. He wants our heart. And he promises that when we give generously and sacrificially and joyfully that he will fill us with far more joy than we, than we spend, so to speak. And that's a bad, bad analogy, but it's the best I can think of than we spend when we give. Let me tell you this too, by the way. I always say, I always say this, there wasn't a great way to weave this in, but um, some people I know, uh, when pastors preach about money, like it has, pastors have abused uh, their platforms and taught in very manipulative ways about money. Let me just acknowledge that. Um, this is not about building us up. My income's not dependent on giving or anything like that. I don't actually know what, I don't know if anybody here gives. And I work hard to make it that way so that I don't treat anybody differently based on whether or how much they give. Um, if you're still skeptical, like, I get that. I get that. I, I just read uh, two weeks ago a story of a, of a pastor in the Northeast who basically embezzled like millions of dollars through some manipulative teaching about giving. So this happens, I get it. If you're really skeptical and you're just not there, that, does, that doesn't mean these principles aren't true. What I would invite you to do is find a way to put this into practice outside of a church setting, okay? So if you're skeptical, don't give to Middle Street. Give to another nonprofit or charity, or you can give direct. We would love to connect you with ministries or missionaries that you can give directly to. Because this really isn't about us as a church or our, our pocket, but this is about your heart and your joy. And whether it's to this church or elsewhere, the principle holds that joyful generosity changes our heart. As we give sacrificially and generously, Christ fills us with joy and we become more like him. Look back to verse 9. If you have your um, program, if you have revival out, look at 1 Corinthians 8 verse 9. This is where Paul really gets to the heart of the matter. And we realize it's not about money. It's, it's about our hearts. Because Paul says, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. That though he was rich, 
Though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. Jesus Christ became poor so that we might become rich. And of course, we don't just mean that financially. I mean, that's a limited way to think about it. And I imagine there are a lot of perks of being God. I don't know what they are, but I assume there are quite a lot. And Jesus gave all of those up when he became human and took on flesh and came to earth. But this is about more than even that. Jesus was not, we're not talking about financial wealth. We're talking about unity with God. And Jesus gave all of that up at the cross. For our sakes, he became poor so that we became rich. He gave up all of his unity with God. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He cried out on the cross as if there was a hard wedge that had completely divided Jesus from his unity with the Father and therefore from all joy and life. And yet what did he do? Hebrews 10. I'm sorry, Hebrews 12. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. The author of Hebrews puts some of this together. Jesus set his eyes on the cross and approached the cross with what? With the joy, it says. He knew, he knew what it was going to cost him. He prayed in the garden, God, if there's any other way, take this cup from me. And yet he will, not just willingly, not begrudgingly, not out of obligation or duty or just rote obedience, but with joy approached the cross, scorning its shame, knowing it was going to cost him everything, that he would become the most impoverished person who ever lived. Why? Out of love. Out of love. Because he knew the only way to redeem a broken world and a broken people and a sinful people was to give his life so that we might receive his. This isn't about money at all, in a sense. I mean, it's about money, but it's really not about money at all. It is about our Lord Jesus Christ, who, though he was rich, yet for our sakes became poor so that we, through his poverty, might become rich. He approached the cross with joy and with, with nothing but generosity. In other words, Jesus didn't approach giving as though there was a ceiling to say, okay, I'm going to give this much and then that's going to be enough. I'm going to teach some really good lessons about morality and about selflessness and about how to interact well with others. I'm going to do a couple miracles here and there and then that's good. No, he gave everything. You see? Jesus Christ, the king of the universe, gave everything, including his very life, for us. Jesus himself is our, our model our par excellence of joyful generosity. And so he invites us. He doesn't command us. You can say no. But he invites us and says, come follow me in a path of joyful generosity and see if I'm not good to my word See if I don't fill you with more joy than you can possibly keep down.